0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, TrinitySpartanburg.com. Good morning. Let's go to the Word of God. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2 and pick up at verse 18. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the institution of marriage. We thank you for uh, the joy, the strength, the fruitfulness that comes from this institution, and we ask that you would bless us as we think on marriage, and um, Lord, that you would uh, help us to uh, keep our minds focused on your word, and Father, that you would uh, strengthen us for this task, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So today's topic is chapter 24, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is of marriage and divorce. And so, um, appropriate to start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, where marriage is instituted, you'll note that the institution of marriage precedes the fall of man, which means that marriage as an institution is a creation ordinance, therefore it applies to all men everywhere. Okay? Okay. And of course, there's uh, part of the moral law which deals with divorce, and that would be the command not to commit adultery. Uh, the, the wholesome understanding of that verse would, um, would be that uh, we are to pursue marriage and purity in marriage. Um, but the beginning, the end, the middle, all throughout Scripture, marriage is held forth as something honorable. Right, something blessed of God, an institution that was made and defined by God for the blessing of mankind. From Genesis chapter uh, 1, really, where um, the command is be fruitful and multiply, implies the, the coming together in one flesh of the man and the woman, all the way to the marriage shepherd of the lamb, when when Christ marries his bride, the church, when that relationship is consummated. And, um, and that's the primary marriage of Scripture, of which the marriage between a man and a woman is but a reflection. Right, That first marriage, like fatherhood, is God's first, and our fatherhood in this world is a reflection of his archetypal fatherhood. So um, so this chapter lays out um, who can be married, gives a definition of marriage, and then moves on to the, um, the topic of divorce and what, what is a biblical divorce and um, how that divorce should be uh, prosecuted. And so, let's walk through it. We'll start with uh, section one, which reads, Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. All right, so that's the first section there. Uh, No controversy there, right? Right? No, no walls that that builds up uh, to which our society is striking against, right? No, I mean, we could go, we could go to the um, recent five, six years ago, the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and they would have marriage defined differently, Right? It would be a purely romantic vision of marriage and not a biological vision for marriage, right, among other things. Um, They would pin it to love or exclusively call marriage a relationship of love, whereas we would say, well, that's an element that ought to be present in marriage, but it is not the full definition of marriage, Right Marriage has purposes beyond companionship, okay and so I mean just this first statement um, this first statement is is fighting words, right This first statement read anywhere in our culture, whether it be at the uh, a city council meeting or in the the state capitol or um, at a parent-teacher conference at a school to take this position will earn you hissing and booze today. I mean, there's like a a swift response to stating that marriage is is between one man and one woman, okay? And so um, love that it starts right there. Uh, That was not a controversial statement when it was made Uh, As the Westminster Confession of Faith was being written, it was an obvious statement. It was just like a a no-brainer, and uh, certainly scriptural, based upon the passage. And then it, it immediately goes on from there, one man, one woman. And again, we say, man means you got the chromosomes for manhood, and you know, and, and woman is, you've got the chromosomes for a woman. It's reflected in your biology. You are uh, born, you are assigned a sex by God in the womb, right? And it is your duty as a man or as a woman to live according to the, to obey the sex that God assigned to you in the womb. Okay? You guys get that, right? But you guys also see how incendiary that can be today. Okay, obey your sex. Your sex is not malleable, it's not changeable, it's not a continuum, it's not um, fluid, it's not contextual, right? It is assigned to you. By God, right? And I mean, this is where if you say something like that, uh, you know, all the exceptions come up. Well, what about hermaphrodites? Okay, so let's let the exceptions, you know, define the whole, right? Which is what liberals do, right? That's how abortion is being fought right now. They take the one-tenth of one percent of something that occurs and make that the rule by which the norm has to be defined, okay? It's twisted, right? Rather than looking at the 99.99 percent and defining the norm based upon that. So, uh, again, that's the first thing that needs to be needs to be stated here. Marriage is between one man and one woman, and then it goes on and talks about um, the fact that a man or a woman cannot have more than one spouse at the same time. Okay, um, so that's a that's a swipe at bigamy. That's a swipe at polygamy, that's a swipe at polyandry, right? Polyandry means having many husbands, polygamy is having many wives, um, bigamy is having two wives, and the two wives don't have any knowledge of each other. It's like living secret lives, and uh, that, was a ma- that was a major problem uh, back in the time of the Reformation and earlier because there wasn't much communication going on from city to city. And so somebody could uh, marry in one city and get sick of him and move on without a divorce, without an annulment, and marry somebody else in a different city. And those two cities would never communicate, and so they would be living a double life. A woman could do that, a man could do that. And so that is forbidden by this. One is to have one man, a wife should have one man, and a man should have one wife, okay, but, um, but what about all those examples in Scripture of many wives? I mean, some of our, some of the godliest examples we have in Scripture had many wives, King David, King Solomon is, is hardly, you know, I mean, I mean, David had, what, seven wives, seven or eight, six, under ten. But Solomon outdid him <laughs> quite a bit, uh, a thousand. And, and so, um, what about that? And what we have to maintain is that that is not the way that God defined marriage. Genesis 2 says a husband, right? A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Wife. The singular there is very important, right? A man, a wife. And that is, this is the institution of marriage here. And so those two, the husband and the wife, become one flesh. And so though... Um, though God did not strike down those men for their polygamy, um, we would still maintain, based upon the Scriptures, that they were in sin. Okay? This was not the way that it was supposed to work. And um, not the way in which it was instituted. Okay? So we can make that. Um, the saints of Scripture, those saved by grace through faith, sinned. Is that a surprise to you? Should not be. Should not be, and that's why we need Jesus Christ and we need Him to forgive our sins and we need our faith to come through Him. Um, one other thing, I think I already said this cre- this is a creation ordinance, and so a creation ordinance is not just God instituting something for His church like the Lord's table and baptism, those are instituted in his church. These are instituted before the fall, and so creation ordinance applies to all men everywhere. It serves civil ends as much as it serves religious ends, right? So it, it has a civil import. That's why we see and support marriage everywhere in every culture. Um, marriage that is marriage indeed. Right? So, um, that's the first section. Any questions? Yeah. If it's in the form of a question, this is Jeopardy. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I I think I get what you're saying, but I mean, w- what I would say in response to that, ch- transgenderism is is disobedience, right? It is it is not tying sexuality to biology. But having said that, do is there are are some people confused about their sexuality? And I would say, yeah, there, there are feminine men, there are butch women, right? And that, that militates, begins to peck away at that, and if you have a society who is then supporting you, saying, well, then maybe you're a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body, well, then it causes great conflict within, right? And it's a temptation of the devil. It causes great conflict within. But at that point, we say, we don't say, look, you know, go with your feelings. We say, fight your feelings, fight your heart, and obey God. And it, will, it may be a life of suffering for you. But, but God promises his children suffering. So suffer on, you know. Those things having to do with our sexuality are intensely painful, personal, close, difficult. But if you tend toward effeminacy and you're a male, fight it, right? Fight against it. If you tend toward butchness as a female, fight it. If your children, your, your, your sons tend toward effeminacy, help them fight that. Right, And if you want pointers on how to do that, talk with Chuck. (laughs) Afterwards, no. Talk with me, talk with Chuck, talk with Renton about that. But it's very important. It's very important today because, because the barrage of messages coming from everybody else other than the Orthodox Christian church is go with what you feel. Right? It makes you under the lordship of what you feel. And often what you feel is just absolutely wrong, bad, satanic. Okay, And so, I guess that's how I'd say that. Let's keep going. Number two. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. For the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed and for the preventing of uncleanness. All right, so this now is a purpose statement for marriage. The first one defined it, right, one man, one woman, very simply, in a a monogamous relationship right? One man, one woman. Now it's like, okay, so why did God ordain marriage? What was its purpose? And these three, I would say that there are three here, these three purposes reflect the same purposes as are laid out in our book of church order. And did you know in Evangel Presbytery, Every pastor who does it, who who performs a wedding ceremony has to mention these three purposes of marriage. Right? And so we've we've uh, locked our pastors in. They can't leap over this. They can't nuance it. They can't, you know, come up with their own purposes, but we've locked in these because they're scriptural. And so let me read you that section. Where is it? Um, Da, 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 da. During the solemn, This is in chapter 72 of our BCO. During the solemnization of the marriage, the three scriptural purposes of marriage as described by the Westminster Confession of Faith shall be stated. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. Additionally, the man is required to vow to love and cherish the woman and the woman is required to love, cherish, and obey the man. And so those vows, we lock the pastors in. Those vows have to be performed during the wedding ceremony. And, uh, but there we are. We, we must state these purposes of marriage. And so what are those purposes? Mutual help of husband and wife. What does that mean? What's the mutual help of husband and wife? If you're married, how have you seen this reflected in your marriage? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's a, and a strong uh, can be a strong fortress against the temptations that we uh, Okay. So, so uh, the side I would say uh, God also this Right. And it was not good that the man was alone, so he created the woman for the man, right? And so there's, this is the companionship part of marriage, right? We two come together and they mutually help one another in ways corresponding to their sex, right? They're not identical, but there's a mutual help, right? And so because marriage is ordered, um, Adam first, Eve second, okay? There's an order within marriage, and so um, the mutual help corresponds to, those, um, to that order. Um, in, the, in Cranmer's old uh, marriage solemnization form, he states the three purposes of marriage too. They correspond beautifully with these three. There's no difference here. Um, but here's how he put it. First, marriage is given for the mutual society help and comfort that man and wife should have for the other. And that's much more poetic than the, you know, these Presbyterians who don't have a poetic bone in their body, right? Um, you, need a, you need a good Anglican to um, have words, Marriage is given for the mutual society help and comfort that man and wife should be, should have from the other, both in prosperity and adversity, right? It continues no matter the circumstances. And then secondly, so that's the first one, I would say that's companionship, mutual help, um, comfort one another. Uh, The second one, what is the second one? For the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed. What is that talking about, huh? Children, children. So, um, so um, when it says for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, it's fighting against the illegitimate issue of children, bastard children, right? This who who have who are born not into a the loving union of a husband and wife where you have both mother and father, but an illegitimate issue, which is a scourge on that child and on mankind largely. Okay, um, again, that is countercultural. Realize that. Okay, um, I. I th- more, more children are born outside of marriage than in marriage, I would suppose, today. Um, probably could find those stats really quick. And that is a scourge on society and on that child, right? Um, and th- to provide the church with an holy seed, Right? Um, that the church would grow, that the children of the church would be the generation of those who continue on in the church and profess the faith. This is the normative way that God builds His church. It's the primary way that God builds His church is by His faithful children being fruitful and multiplying and providing children who should then be Baptized. So, um, no controversy there. Increase of mankind, we're going we're gonna to baptize one of those babies today. It makes me really happy. Um, and so, this is, there's so much that could be said about this, right? One of the commentaries I was reading said something very, you know, bodacious And and he said, this is G.I. Williamson, his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. He says, to avoid bearing children for selfish reasons is the very opposite of a proper fulfillment of the divine purpose of marriage. To avoid having children for selfish reasons is the very opposite of the divine purpose for marriage because God created marriage so that we would produce for him a seed of holy children in the church 1 Corinthians 7 right speaking of the holiness of the children the covenantal holiness of children right and so i didn't say they were regenerate i said they were covenantally holy okay we make a distinction there but but this is God's purpose for marriage. And so when when I do premarital counseling with couples, um, you'll hear me say, couples, at some point, if you're getting married, you should be prepared to have children. You should be ready. You should be prepared. And if that scares you, don't get married. Don't get married. Wait. Wait until you're ready to obey God in this. And fill your house and his house with God's holy seed. And then finally for, uh, how does does Cranmer put that? Second, marriage is given for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of God. Right? Uh, Beautiful. And then third, for the preventing of uncleanness. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) To avoid fornication, to avoid sexual impurity, right? Those who burn should marry, is what Scripture says. It's quite a blunt command by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And so it, it prevents uncleanness. It is the only space that God allows sexual activity to take place. Marriage. That monogamous, one male, one female union. That is the one place where you can have sexual activity and it not be unclean, right? Not that, well, anyway. Um, so, for the preventing of uncleanness, for the preventing of sin. And so Cranmer says third marriage is instituted as a, as a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, so that those who are married might live in the purity of marriage and keep themselves undefiled as members of Christ's body, right? So, so Cranmer's like, okay, keep yourselves pure, and the purpose of it is not just your marriage, but that your leaven won't leaven the whole lump of the church, right? That the church would be pure. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, We're not talking uh, merely about spiritual uh, cleanness, but there's even, you know, the lesser uh, afflictions of the body. All right, so those are the three purposes of marriage. Every evangel pastor who does a marriage is obligated by our book of church order to state those things. I like the way that Cranmer states them, but they're perfectly the same as what's stated here. Same three purposes. And then we get some prohibitions. Okay, in, in section three. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Okay, see so, so the woman and the man must give their consent to the marriage. We don't arrange marriage, marriages without the consent of both parties. The consent of both parties is necessary. Right? That is necessary, that consent. And, it's, and it, it says who are able with judgment to give their consent. And so if you have a 17-year-old who you know, fell in love with some twenty-two-year-old and she is just enamored with him but doesn't really understand the purposes of marriage and is just and her parents just don't really care what she does and she, you know, doesn't have any help making that judgment. I would say that maybe she lacks the judgment she needs to actually give her consent. Right? And then the elders would get involved and try to figure out, okay. Eh, eh. What's going on here? Um, but if if you have a spiritual um, impulse, if you have some understanding of what marriage entails, and you can give your consent, then, um, then you can be married. Now, this consent giving uh, has been crammed into our services. The solemnization of marriage, we, the first thing you do is... Declare, the declaration of consent starts the service. And everybody gets confused about what that is because everybody's waiting for the vows, right? Everybody's waiting for the vows, but the, it seems like you're taking vows at the beginning of the service. Well, that's the declaration of, of consent, which used to take place weeks before the wedding. Okay? That used to take, in, in Reformation times, that took... That was three Sundays, I think, before the marriage. They would do the declaration of consent. They would publish the bans, which would mean to declare um, three weeks before the wedding. They would say, whoever has any reason why these two shouldn't be married, let us know. And they would give people three weeks or two weeks to come and say, look, no, she's, she got married in Germany last year. You know, she... She's already married. But we have, we have, we as good, um, efficient Americans have condensed everything down into a service and made it sort of uh, what's the word? What's that? Streamline. Streamlined, but perfunctory, just sort of. It's there, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve the purpose for which it was originally intended, right? And so we do this right at the beginning of the service. And it's kind of like everybody's there, everybody's watching. They've spent $20,000. They've got their clothes on. They've got all the pomp. And, I, I mean, are they really going to give an honest answer? So do you take this man to be your, your lawful wedded husband? Um, no, but that's that's where we are. But I just want you to understand some of that history, and it is important. and And there is equality here. The woman and the man must give consent, right? You cannot force a marriage without consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. Okay. So now we're getting, some, getting into who can be married, the question. So who, who exactly can be married? And Christians can't marry non-believers, right? Any pastor who, who has questions about the faith of one or the other should wait to marry them until he's convinced that either they're both believers or both unbelievers. You heard what I said, Right? There's a civil end to marriage. I would, I, I would be happy to marriage, marry two unbelievers. I've done so. Right? But I will not unequally yoke two people. I will equally yoke people, whether they're believers or unbelievers. But there cannot be an unequal yoking because that will lead to perpetual conflict and simply it's a sin against God. Being unequally yoked is a sin against God, and that should not be practiced. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with... Okay, so those who profess the true Reformed religion, what does that mean? What's the true Reformed religion? Oh, that's us. Well, it goes beyond us. I wouldn't say Christian religion. That's too broad. They are trying to bring this down a bit, right? And so, I mean, we could argue probably for the rest of the day about what the true Reformed religion is, right? And the different, well, does that mean Lutheran? Does that mean Presbyterian? Does that mean Congregationalist? Does that mean, you know, the Canons of Dort? Does that mean... The Heidelberg Confession, or the Westminster Confession, or, I mean, how exactly do you find that? And, um, and yet, it means something here, okay? It means there's some understanding of the interpretation of Scripture that we believe is, is um, biblical, and that would be the Reformed faith, as is set out in the Westminster Confession and summarized there, right? But it goes beyond the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is not the only summary of the Reformed faith. Okay? But those people who are Presbyterian, Reformed, a member of, of a Reformed body, should not marry with infidels. Okay, that's somebody who has no faith. That's a pagan. That's an unbeliever. Shouldn't marry an unbeliever. Restating what was said before. Papists, nothing to say about that, or other idolaters, or other idolaters. Okay, well, it's been interesting reading about that word papists. Most take it to mean those who... Um, are practitioners of the Roman Catholic faith, Okay, those who have been uh, confirmed and baptized and pr- are practicing in the Roman church. Lethem makes an argument that this was a political title, which is really the first time I've ever read this, but he makes the argument this was a political, uh, political status, and it meant those in league with the French and Spanish governments who were Roman Catholic, right? The French and the Spanish, diehard Roman Catholics, and just remember what, you know, Henry VIII had just done. You know, forget your Roman Catholic church. I'm the king and head of the church. My church, right? And so, so papacy was outlawed, right, in the land, and yet they were papists who were like insurrectionists. They were trying to get the King of France and the King of Spain to come in and, and wipe out England so that they could set up their, their Roman, Catholic, you know, Roman Catholic utopia. And so he makes that case. Um, I, he's the only one I've seen make the case that that was a political status. It would seem, I don't know, he could be right. I just don't know. But most of, the, most of the reflection on this means those who practice the Roman Catholic faith. And so, um, I certainly would have a difficult time marrying some Reformed dude to a Roman Catholic chick. Because there is such a divergence in theology right? And we don't want to minimize that. We care about theology. We don't want to minimize that theology. And whether the difference between the doctrines of grace and um, semi-Pelagianism, works and faith combined to save, is huge. That's an everyday part of the practice of that religion, Okay. I'm not willing to say that there aren't Christians in the, the Roman Catholic Church. I think there are, despite the doctrine. But if you hold to the doctrines of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, it is, it is unorthodox and it is set against what we believe the Scriptures teach, okay? And so, it's the stupid Roman Catholics who are saved. The ones who don't know their doctrine and don't really care, they just love Jesus. The sheep. The sheep. Sheep are stupid, right? Or idolaters. Or other idolaters. So that brings in everybody else. That brings in Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, um, followers of... What's that? Mormons, followers of, of uh, any weird, you know, cult. Uh, neither should such, and now listen to this, neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. And so this is someone who professes the Reformed faith but their life is just like a wreck, right? They're ungodly. They don't seem to have any self-control. And certainly, those who hold to damnable heresies, they may profess faith, they may even be a member of the church, but they hold to damnable heresies. And, um, and so they're like, you can't marry that person. You want to marry somebody who's going to so quickly go off the rails and abandon the church? And then raise your kids in that divided household. Uh, no, that would be torture. So you can't marry unbelievers, Roman Catholics slash papists, idolaters of any kind, notoriously wicked or heretics. Don't do it. don't do it. seriously, this is, this is so this is so important because because the emotions are so intense when you find somebody that you fall in love with that you just, you're, you, you go cuckoo. You go wacko in the head. You lose your discernment completely. And you will overlook the grossest thought, flaws of somebody. The grossest views, right? Because you like the shape of their face. Don't do it. You have to have people who help you be objective in this, you know, And that should be the elders and pastors of the church. All right? Any questions? Damnable heresies are, what is a heresy? A heresy is that which, if you believe it, you will not go to heaven. Right? You are not saved. You proved you are not saved when you believe that certain thing. Okay? There are gross errors that are not heresy. They're just gross errors, right? But then there's heresy, and if you believe that thing, it proves you're condemned, all right? Um, We'll get into that a little bit, but it doesn't say much about, it, it only says one thing about engagement, which I found interesting, which we may have time, we don't have time for. All right, let me say a few things. Marriage ought not to be within degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. You can't marry relatives, okay, of a certain, you know, closeness, uh, even, even in South Carolina. All right, or maybe that's North Carolina. Let's pin it to North Carolina. Um, Appalachia. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract engagement. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage gives just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. Right? So, if you've been engaged to somebody and uh, there's fornication, there's um, uh, adultery if you've been engaged to somebody and have sex with somebody else that gives you all the right you, that that's all you need to d- dissolve that engagement you know you have every right to say well great job you broke my heart and we're done okay so that's what it says about engagement that's that's all it says in the case of adultery after marriage it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce, to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Okay, so the innocent party can sue out a divorce. The innocent party, right? The guilty party can't sue out a divorce. The innocent party, the one who did not commit the sin of adultery or abandonment, right? Okay, so uh, the innocent party can do that. And after the divorce, it's as if that other person is dead, and so they can remarry. Just lay it out in Scripture as clear as can be. Um, Romans 7, 2 and 3. And then finally, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceedings is to be observed and the person's concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretions in their own case. Okay, so two, two reasons, two possible situations where divorce is legitimate. One, adultery, pornea, sexual sin. Okay? Two, willful abandonment. Right? And that, that both, you know, adultery is pretty clear in, in, its, in how it occurs. But even there, there's there's emotional adultery, there's sexual adultery, there's different forms of adultery, right? But certainly pornea um, uh, is grounds for that. And then willful abandonment is, um, you know, an unbeliever says, look, I'm tired of your faith, I'm tired of of you, I'm leaving you. In that case, you know, the innocent party can sue out for a divorce in that. But there's also the, the, the willful abandonment would be at times when the husband completely reneges on his duty as a husband. In other words, it's willful abandonment when a man begins to severely abuse his wife physically. Okay, at least I would make that case. That can be argued. But again, these things come before the elder board and the elder board does an investigation and then makes a determination on this through church discipline, right? I mean, you think, you think it's only the police and detectives that do investigations. The church courts do investigations all the time and you want it that way. You want it that way because these things are, are complicated. So we got to stop. <laughs> no questions. You can ask me afterwards. All right. We love you, Lord. We thank you for marriage. We thank you that you, um, you desire to have a generation and generation after generation praising your name, and so you've brought men and women together in order to produce a holy seed for your church. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for the companionship of marriage. Thank you for the way that it keeps us from impurity. Lord, we ask that we would honor you in our marriages, and for those who are not yet married, we pray that you would provide them with believing, godly, compassionate spouses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.